Warning, this episode contains mention of suicide. It also contains strong language that could be offensive to young or sensitive listeners. From WOSU Public Media, this is The Power Grab, how dark money and dirty politics led to the biggest bribery scandal in Ohio history. I'm your host, Renee Fox. In our last episode, we heard how First Energy used cash to create unholy power alliances between the company, Larry Householder, lobbyists, political operatives, and a slate of sympathetic candidates. They used their clout to propel Householder into the most powerful position in Ohio's house. There, he fulfilled his end of the bargain. He introduced the bill that First Energy wanted and fought tooth and nail to get it passed. And it did, by a single vote. But the resistance to HB6 wasn't over. A campaign to overturn the bill was launched, but ultimately fell short. Team Householder spent millions to make sure of it. The FBI, already suspicious, started to make its case behind the scenes. They focused their attention on Neil Clark, one of the state's most well-known lobbyists and second-in-command at Team Householder. Episode 3. It's a setup. Federal investigators were tracking the millions of dollars spent to pass HB6 and beat back the effort to overturn it. They subpoened records behind the scenes. Meanwhile, undercover agents tapped phones and covertly recorded dinners to gather evidence. Evidence that would show this conspiracy crossed the line from political maneuvering to criminal racketeering. Neil Clark was a linchpin. His secretly recorded statements filled the 80-page affidavit the feds issued in 2020. Clark was already paranoid that he was on the FBI's radar. He was even suspicious that his new clients, who claimed to be hotel developers, were actually FBI. And he was right. The Columbus lobbyist from humble beginnings had made it far in Ohio politics. He was a fierce competitor and prided himself on going scorched earth for a cause. He left nothing on the table and hated to lose. He didn't care if he believed in the cause or not. That made him the perfect partner for Larry Householder. But before Householder could bring Clark onto his team, the two had to repair their own relationship. Regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. Clark understood politicians well. He knew from experience they'd always put their own life jackets on first and let you drown if it meant staying above the surface for another minute or two. He never wanted to forget that, so he hung a reminder in his office overlooking the state house. Here he describes it. A photo of Frank Sinatra and John F. Kennedy, laughing and happy, before Kennedy dropped Sinatra when he won the presidency. Clark is talking to an undercover FBI agent posing as a developer. You saw that picture. Uh, as you're leaving the office, you say Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and Kennedy. You know yep. what that's about? In politics, no matter how close you think you are to a politician, they'll write you down. John Kennedy broke his heart. So that's why I always have that sitting there, because it reminds me every day that every politician has an obligation. 
The lesson was reinforced the first time Clark and Householder teamed up. Back in 2001, Householder asked for Clark's help securing the role of House Speaker. They used a strategy they'd repeat to get Householder back in the job in 2019. Disrupt the existing power structure by bringing in a bunch of new allies. Despite news leaking of Householder's four convictions for alcohol-related offenses in 2000, including driving under the influence, he won his House race. He ran on education reform, offering to fix the state's unconstitutional school funding formula. But Householder never did a thing to rehaul school funding. What he did do was reward Ohio's energy industry. If First Energy backed Householder's 2019 ambitions, the coal industry did in 2000. So naturally, he tripled a tax credit electric utilities could get for burning coal. His team of allies won more than a dozen primary races against the established Republicans, with Clark's help. Thirteen years ago, he wanted to be speaker, and so I, you know, I used all my influence to him become speaker. Yeah. He used the wins to talk them into a power-sharing deal, a deal Clark says Householder broke. Clark describes it as a double-cross in his self-published tell-all, What Do I Know? I'm Just a Lobbyist. I was content with the deal, but sharing anything especially power, is not the householder way. If you show weakness, he will go ahead and take it all. That was a voice actor reading from the autobiography. He'll be reading from other parts of the book throughout the episode. Householder didn't like it when people attributed his newly found power to his alliance with Clark. People start whispering to him, you know, he's got too much power, this, this, that, you know, this, this, that, and that. And so the press writes a story that Neil Clark owns him. Okay. Pissed him off. So I'm on vacation. He has a press conference that says, Neil's an illusion. He doesn't exist. Oh, shit. And I, I just, so we, he and I went to war. Yeah. I mean, we went the motherfucking war. Clark said the two didn't speak for 13 years. Householder always has to be the genius in the room. All ideas are his alone. Like Clark said, they went to war. Wait, when he gets mad at somebody that, because they fucked him... Boy, he's just not a pleasant person. And he's, see, he and I, I fought back. I mean, I... You didn't roll over? Oh, no. He had an FBI investigation up his ass. He had all that kind of pride shit, you know. Everything that could have gone wrong for a guy, I did. I did. Clark's tip sparked the FBI's attention. Karen Kassler with the State House News Bureau. As he was leaving in March 2004, there was an anonymous memo that surfaced accusing him and two staffers of bribery and fundraising irregularities, kickback schemes involving campaign vendors through the Republican caucus. That was turned over to federal investigators by... The two staffers were fired. The FBI investigated. No charges were filed. As a lobbyist, you never ever attacked an elected official person who has power unless they are wounded or in the last two years of their term. Stories started to fly in 2003 about corruption, an FBI investigation, and pay-to-play. The whole gambit of shit. That was me. Householder moved on to become the Perry County Auditor in a narrow win after leaving the House. Their ethics investigators followed him. They said he paid county employees for time they hadn't worked, while they renovated a restaurant he invested in. The office also fell behind on regular duties while he was in charge. 
Before making his way back into the state house in 2016, Householder invested in coal mining ventures in West Virginia and Alabama. The two ventures ended in lawsuits and an accusation of fraud. Federal prosecutors say some of the money Householder got from First Energy went to paying off debts from that case. But getting back to Clark's story, he often said he was with the Republican Party because they were the first ones to offer him a job. It was all because we got a job. The Republicans, I was a registered Democrat when I was working with Republicans. I gave me a job. I say, I, and I changed my party in 1980, and I've been a Republican since then. Okay. Yeah. Clark clarifies in his book that he often voted for Democrats in national races, especially for president in recent decades. He had a strong dislike of Donald Trump. When householders started calling him a few years before HB6 was introduced, Clark said he ignored him at first. Calls me for another year, maybe a half a year. So one day I finally pick up the phone. What? And he says, I just want to tell you why I've been trying to get a hold of you for a year and a half. Then I'm sorry. Yeah. And I said, all right, then we're, then good, we're done. All right. all right, so what do you need me to do now? He said, why well, want to be speaker then? Um, I went on board. Clark had seen Householder do this before, so it seemed like a safe power play for them both. But this time he tried to stay in the shadows to avoid attention and Householder's ego-driven wrath. And so I made sure that his second round, I don't spend any time in front of him, in front of other people. Right. I don't, I don't hug him, we shake his hand. Clark worked closely with Householder to handle their first energy-funded power grab. With the scope of the project, the relationship didn't stay secret forever. But it turned from statehouse gossip to breaking news when the two were indicted and arrested alongside three others on July 21, 2020. Federal agents arrest one of the most powerful men in Ohio. Republican House Speaker Larry Householder was arrested on racketeering charges. In a federal bribery case that goes back to the controversial bailout of the nuclear power plants. Charges federal officials call it a shameful betrayal of public trust. The largest bribery case in Ohio history. A federal case was the last thing Clark wanted. While that could probably be said of most people, it ran deep in Clark. Clark described his dad as a foot soldier in the mafia. With his English ancestry, he couldn't become a made man. He was content with mostly doing petty robberies and collections. He said he got away with a train robbery that left four people dead, but the law caught up eventually, more than once. I was 10 years old the first time I visited the Ohio pen. Clark said his dad was a con man who knew how to manipulate people to get what he wanted. He even stole Clark's wallet once. The family moved often and it hurt Clark in school. He struggled with reading and was held back in third grade. The stigma followed him. When people learned his age, they'd ask if he was held back. His father's absence forced Clark, his mother, and sister to leave Cleveland to live with his maternal grandmother, who bit Clark's hand as a form of discipline. 
He describes that time in Toledo as hell. He writes in his book that his mother and grandmother was Sicilian and came from a family that ran a gambling and bootlegging operation in Italy before coming to Ohio. Unlike most Sicilian families, my grandmother was not just a matriarch, but also an unadulterated powerhouse. She carried a 45 caliber gun under her dress. She had contacts with the church elders, charity groups, and organized criminals. But like most Sicilian grandmothers, she made fantastic Sunday feasts of homemade pasta, meatballs, and sauce. His mother was hardworking and took straight jobs. Clark said they looked out for each other. Clark fought through his early obstacles. He released his anger and fear of failure on the football field at Catholic schools in Cleveland and in street fights throughout his teens. He took insults and low expectations and turned them into fuel. He relished proving authority figures like coaches and nuns wrong. He pushed through his schooling, swore off fighting, and made it to Ohio University. I was done. I wanted to head to college, not jail. But still, the crimes of his father followed him. FBI, open up. Fuck me. What? Your dad escaped from prison. (laughs) Now it looks like I'm a narc. (laughs) He escaped from prison. They 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 come in and they go, "Have you heard from your father?" I said, "Finally, we'll hit this motherfucking letter. Just this terrible letter. uh, A couple months ago." And they pull it out of their pocket. They go, "You mean this letter?" And I said, "You trying to fuck with me? <laughs> with soccer? You trying to fuck with me? Did you think that I'm like hiding him under the bed?" I said, "I don't like the guy." The encounter deeply embarrassed Clark. He had gone by his middle name Scott in high school, but started going by Neil after, trying to distance himself from the tough guy image he had cultivated as a defense mechanism in the old neighborhood. When the FBI showed up, the two worlds collided. Rumors circulated about Clark. Was he a narc? Was his family mafia? It wasn't the last time the FBI knocked on his door. They came back before he graduated. It's treated later. I'm now a senior. Like you. <laughs> FBI. What? We caught your dad. I said, don't you have a phone? <laughs> <laughs> don't you have a phone? <laughs> So my whole life, I, I, I was still already acclimated to these guys from when I was a kid. <laughs> By the time I became an adult, there wasn't anything to do. Fuck, I've seen this before, guys. Clark might have come from humble beginnings, but he made connections and came across opportunities that propelled him into state politics. He studied business, accounting, and political science in Ohio University's grad school. After graduation in 1980, Clark briefly took a job as a fiscal analyst for the Legislative Budget Office before Senate Republicans persuaded him to join them as a budget analyst. He helped develop new budget writing techniques. The veteran showed him what to wear and how to navigate the power structures. Staff comes in and says, <coughs> you need to wear undershirt. You need to buy your clothes here. You need to have Oxford button-down collars. You need to have your suits. Oh, the- and they, they dressed me, they did all that shit, and within six years, I went from this one little staffer to one of the most significant individuals during that time that's ever been employed by the state. 
His involvement in developing the state budgets led to the nickname the 34th Senator. Ohio has 33 elected state senators. His ability to move within the gray areas made him a valuable political operative. Anytime he experienced defeat, he doubled down. He could find money for candidates at a racetrack or a formal dinner. Don't do a campaign with me unless you are willing to risk it all. He did his research. He read the fine print, dug through dumpsters. He knew the dirt on his enemies and his friends. What I had learned in my first seven years in politics was a politician's worst enemies are his friends. Remember that I said that. But as he built his own reputation, his father's criminal past nagged at him. He didn't want to turn out like him. Clark was determined to set himself apart. During the day, I'm a lobbyist political consultant. I help people get, re- get elected or reelected. But in his off hours, he took up a hobby. He became an artist. Here's Clark talking about his work on WOSU-TV in 2013. I was in Ma- Maui vacationing, and I walked into a gallery, and I saw this Maui prince on a uh, piece of wood. It was uh, made of mosaics, and he charged $2,500, and I said, gee, I can do that. He built a workshop full of jars with color-coded pieces of glass and gave away portraits of Marilyn Monroe and Jackie Onassis. I think a lot of people in town would think that my reputation is one of high intensity and uh, take no prisoners. So I'm, you, when I come into this, they go, there's this softer side of Neil, and uh, I don't look at it as a soft side. I look at it as, I love the art of glass. Here, he talks about it with an undercover FBI agent while they're out at dinner. That's pretty intriguing. How do you, how do you, how do you learn that? I did. I mean, it's self It was just, it was just something I wanted to do. It's, Seriously? Sicilians are, Sicilians are great lovers, great murderers, and great artists. Though I just got a little bit of, a little bit of each. <laughs> but Clark's political career, doing the dirty work of Senate leadership earned him another nickname in Columbus, the Prince of Darkness. Clark was keenly aware of the statute of limitations on campaign crimes. He kept track of the dates of his illegal activities so he'd know when they expire. In 1987, Clark moved into lobbying, where he could make some real money. He teamed up with Democrat Paul Tipps, All the while, Clark continued working with Senate Republicans as a consultant. Tips and Clark went their separate ways after a fiery falling out in 2009. One of Clark's early clients, the Soft Drink Association, spent $10 million to defeat a tax on soda, the pop tax. He represented difficult clients like the payday lending industry and the scandal-embroiled charter school, the Electronic Classroom of Tomorrow. He had more than 2,500 clients by the time he was done. The clients brought money in. Clark hosted lawmakers at restaurants near the state house. They ordered appetizers like the Godfather Roll and Oysters Rockefeller at restaurants like Jeff Ruby's and Hyde Park Steakhouses. So I, I would come here uh, three nights a week. And I sat at that table right there. That was my table. Right here? Uh, yeah. I spent about uh, back... 12, 13 years ago, four or 5,000 a month. I was here, that's just for dinners. I would, I would spend 
I would drink at the bar. Spend a shitload. Clark and Tips had a brush with the legal system in the 90s during an investigation into lobbyists bribing members of the General Assembly. In the end, the grand jury did not indict them, finding it was up to the politicians to report the money. Clark knew enough to be paranoid of the law after his father's history, his own close calls, and the other federal investigations that took down politicians all around him. Yeah, Pete. Pete. He's not an investor. Oh, he's not? No. What was he? What was he? He's just... The FBI seemed to be on his mind frequently. He joked often about them during the recorded dinners no. with undercover agents. He's one of your facilitators. You're not correct. I told you we pay him monthly. No, you didn't tell me that. Don't, and don't tell me what you pay Because I'm going to report back to the FBI. We pay him 9000 He even gave them his test, gauging their reactions when he accused them of being FBI or argued with them over a closely held belief, like being against abortion. My test was, of course, you knew what I was doing when I was there, giving my test about the FBI and telling the story. He knew fucking five, one bit. Yeah. I know how many times your family been under FBI? Never. You could see him, I could see, I could see his brain cells moving. It's all the test. He says he had a bad feeling about the undercover team disguised as hotel developers. Here, he describes it in his book. I left the restaurant and told my driver that it was a good meeting, but they acted the way I thought FBI agents would. I wondered what they were investigating. Clark even told his staff to leave this client to him and had some strong words for the lobbyist, John Ravenold, who introduced him to the group. It was just a dumb fucking game. It's just sticking with me because they're trying to fuck with my record. I said, if that, I said, I'm going to get Ravenold on the phone in the morning. I'm going to... Take that motherfucker's dick. And I'm going to wrap it around his motherfucking neck. And I'm going to strangle that motherfucker's dick. Clark thought it was odd when the fake developers tried to pay for dinners and services with cash. They also asked him if he'd avoid registering as their lobbyist so they could fly under the radar. Nobody knows anything I'm doing. Right, so you thought I was fucked up in the beginning? Oh, yeah, because it... That gave me the first example that you're trying to expose me to not registering. No, but no. It, it was really simple. I don't simple. want to expose me. Yeah, no well, offense. Yeah, but see, in this world, you can't. You are required by law. So what happened? Clark told them he could offer consultation without registering legally, and insisted they wait for invoices from his office and pay their bills by check. The feds named their phony development company Monarch. Clark's office was unable to find any web presence or social media accounts for them. No one had ever heard of the agent's undercover identities, Rob Miller and Brian Bennett. Clark thought he could outmaneuver the situation. He always had in the past. Still, Clark let his guard down. The introduction from Rabinold held weight. He told them, But I saw the guys. I saw your, your team of partners. I saw everything. It was good. They went to a Cincinnati Reds game together. Clark turned down a ride in a jet to visit them in Nashville, opting to drive. He said they tried to arrange yacht trips and even dangled pretty women in front of him. Clark said he turned down the extravagance. His work on the sports betting bill did not lead to charges against him. But what Clark didn't know would be his undoing. Their cover story was just to get them in the door. 
Once Clark accepted them as clients, he relaxed. They shared drinks and slices of red velvet cake. Because you love me. Yeah, we love you. Remember that? Yeah. We're going to start calling you Uncle Neil. Uncle Neil. Uncle Neil. I love, Uncle Neil. I love me some Neil. I, love I know you do. They laughed at each other's stories, and Clark gave them insider details about the issue they really wanted to know about. All the while, the agents pretended they were clueless to Team Householder and the first energy campaign. So they throw a lot of money at everybody? I did this campaign. I did oh, you did? This, I, did this, I did this campaign. Um, all what? we cared about was getting the subsidy. I didn't, it was the speaker who didn't want the mandates. So and you worked between First Energy and Householder? I was his, actually, I was his proxy. Eventually, they said they wanted to meet Householder to take him out and get on his good side for the sports betting bill, even as it crumbled. Householder was tanking the bill as retaliation against the bill's original sponsor. Clark told them they were courting Householder in the wrong way. There was no way he would be enticed by partying, women or booze. Hunting turkeys in Ohio? Yes. Key West? No. The FBI agents told Clark they wanted the state to allow sports betting in a boutique hotel they were developing. As the sports betting bill moved, it became apparent the lawmakers weren't going to go against the casinos and racetracks. So Clark found it odd when they still tried to give householder money. Clark stopped returning their calls, and they went their separate ways. I gave them little thought until I read the complaint and saw some of my own words staring back at me from the pages. I only wish they would have printed all of them. So it appeared my gut was right all along. Monarch and the FBI were one and the same. Clark said that all they got from him were boastful comments taken out of context. If they were looking for a quick sports betting pay-to-play sting, it was they who got stung. But Clark didn't know that his phone was being tapped. So the FBI also got hours and hours of conversations he had with Householder. Conversations he thought were private. Clark said he warned the rest of Team Householder that HB6, the first energy bailout, was trouble. He says he told Householder, First Energy and First Energy Solutions intended on being very hands-on, and their reckless decision-making would get us all killed. And Clark was right. Team Householder sunk. The indictments made a splash in July 2020. A few co-conspirators jumped ship. When they came for Clark, he and his wife were sleeping. They had stayed up the night before looking at RVs. The COVID-19 pandemic was going strong, and they were thinking of making the best of the shutdowns by traveling. He met with the Justice Department for hours and considered cooperating. There, he thanked them for how he was treated during his arrest. They gave me time to get presentable. I put on an Oxford button-down shirt, nice pants, comfortable shoes, and combed my hair. Clark argued in his book that the Justice Department prosecutors were headhunting for political trophies. In the meeting with prosecutors, Clark said the FBI phone taps should have also revealed calls that showed his innocence, but those weren't publicized. He said the U.S. bankruptcy court overseeing First Energy Solutions case gave the okay on HB6 expenditures. He also told them that the utility company had actually spent closer to $70 million, about $10 million more than prosecutors say. The prosecutors asked him, how corrupt is First Energy? 
With 40 years of knowledge under his belt, Clark told them they're the most corrupt company in the state, followed by the nursing home lobby, Ohio's gambling racetracks and casinos, Blue Cross Blue Shield, managed care organizations, and 10 individuals he named. Those companies, groups, and individuals owned the state house. Clark said in his book that the interview included other gems about Ohio lawmakers, but it came to an end when the Justice Department said he would need to plead guilty to go further in the process. He said he wouldn't trust a Trump-appointed judge or Attorney General William Barr's Justice Department. As I put my stuff into my briefcase, I said, you all knew my father was a felon, and you would have to be stupid to think I'd take that conviction on anything like this. I will never have that moniker posted on my life. Then I lifted both hands and gave them the middle finger. Clark died by suicide from a self-inflicted gunshot wound on March 15, 2021. He was found near his home in Naples, Florida. The date of Clark's suicide was the Ides of March, the date Julius Caesar was betrayed and assassinated. Clark wore a DeWine for Governor t-shirt when he died. He said his book would be his legacy. He said the political machine in Ohio is all about selfish power grabs and fulfilling the desires of the donor class. From the first day I walked into the state house, it was already a corrupt pay-to-play state. And over the last 40 years, I saw no saints. I'll put power, self-interest, and greed before the interest of Ohioans. He lamented the friends that lost his number when he was indicted. Ohio Public Radio's Karen Kassler said people either loved or hated Clark. She said his absence is felt by state house regulars. I really, really liked Neil Clark, and I know there were people who really, really didn't like him. I liked him. He was a, he was a force, you know, when he'd call you back, he'd just launch right into whatever. I mean, he didn't fool around with small talk and anything like that. He was just very, very direct. He knew what he wanted to say. And I just found him very friendly though, and, and really accessible and I, I genuinely liked him. And when I found out that he died by suicide, I was really shocked because he was such a towering figure in statehouse politics for decades. And for him to be just gone really left me stunned. I, I was really, really surprised. In the final chapter of the book, titled Final Choice, He discusses the fall of the Roman Emperor Valerian. He was captured and horrifically tortured. He said he wouldn't let that happen to him. Clark stopped going to church as a teen, but prayed the rosary frequently. Each day that I pray, I ask Mary to receive me upon my death and ask to let me serve as a guardian angel for 2,000 years. But he wasn't angelic about it. Then, after 2,000 years, on the first day of the 2001st year, Grant me my archangel sword so I can kill my enemies for eternity. If you know me, you know my end. Respect it. And if you see me in eternity with my sword drawn, just run. Those who knew Clark well said he had a generous side to him. 
He'd pay the grocery bills and the hospital bills of single moms, and he always had a dollar to spare. An FBI agent even caught him giving money to someone as they left one of their secretly recorded dinners. Look, Richard, I, I, I can tell you about violence at 19. Anybody needs anything on the street, I, whatever I have, I do. No questions asked. While Clark pondered his place in the afterlife, he knew his influence in Ohio politics was over the day he was arrested. He had read Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, a Renaissance-era guide to political power. It argues for the ruthless acquisition of power by any means necessary. But Clark didn't respect it. He thought Machiavelli was a loser, and The Prince was a desperate attempt to hold on to influence. For centuries, politicians, scholars, and students have studied his book, The Prince, for his historical insight and advice on how not to govern. His lessons on fear, war, persuasion, prowess, and ambition have been analyzed to death by many political hacks, including me. But I always viewed this exiled political consultant, who himself used his words as a means to gain favor with the prince as a weak soldier. Machiavelli never returned to the prince's court. Everyone in politics knows there is no truer statement than, when you're in, you're in, when you're out, you're out. It really is that simple. For the last 500 years or so, his writings have gone on to provide a poisonous roadmap of sorts for many talentless, naive, or just plain ignorant politicians on how to play the game of politics with tools of deception, cruelty, and crime. In reality, I think the world would have been a better place if Machiavelli had just spent his time burning down the palace. Next week on The Power Grab. Dark money. While the HB6 scheme and householders' grab for power over the Ohio House relied on personal relationships and political pressure, it wouldn't have been possible without the dark money tools the team used to keep their donors concealed and the money trail blurry. The way they covered their tracks forced investigators to work hard to follow the money. Former U.S. attorney David DeVillers. The whole thing was tracing the money. That was the biggest thing, right? It was just, it was just insane. Like, how does it go to First Energy to Householders Enterprise? And, you know, it went through like one C4 to another C4 to another C4, then to, then, then to Generation Now. And then like to buy ads, it didn't go right from Generation Now to buying ads. It went to another C4. Political operatives have been drawn to 501c4s, or c4s for short, ever since the IRS became reluctant to investigate the misuse of nonprofits. Some say they invite corruption in the hands of politicians. Clark recommended all of his clients make their donations to politicians that way. It's secret. A c4 is secret. Nobody knows. The money goes to speaker's account. It is uh, controlled by his people, and one of his people. Yeah. And, it, and nobody, it's, it's not recorded. A C4 is non-recorded. So we the Power Grab is a production of WOSU Public Media and part of the NPR Network. It's written and hosted by me, Renee Fox. The show is produced and edited by Michael DeBonis. 
Audio engineering by Dalton Jones. Additional voice work from Kevin Petrilla. Help us spread the word about the show. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple and Spotify or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, you can reach out to the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, which provides 24-7 call, text, and chat support for people in distress. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.